done so already, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. This is our third time looking at these uh, verses. I think it'll be our last. I never quite know how these things are going to go. But the plan is to look at the the last part of this passage this morning. And you'll remember the the context of of what's going on here. This, This passage is essentially a call to repentance. Uh, But it's a call to repentance that comes at the end of a sermon that followed a sign. So as as Peter and John were going into the temple to pray, they encountered this man who was lame, had been lame all his life. And the man was there to ask for alms. And so as Peter and John were entering, that's what he did. But, But Peter and John had no gold or silver to give to him. Instead, they said to him, Stand up and walk. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, be healed. And immediately this man began walking and leaping and praising God. And of course, to this scene of this man who was lame, this man who everyone knew was lame, this man who everyone had seen sitting outside of the temple begging alms for year after year, the, the sight of him now walking and leaping and praising God necessarily attracted a crowd. People wanted to know uh, how such a thing was possible. And so Peter took the opportunity to proclaim to them the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. He said, the Jesus whom you crucified just weeks earlier in Jerusalem, this same Jesus God raised from the dead, declaring him to be the the Lord and Christ. And now through faith in his name, healing and salvation have come. And in response to that good news, Peter says, you must now Repent. You must now turn back to God. And in our study of this call to repentance, we we have seen that, that repentance begins with our ignorance. It begins with us acknowledging that in our sin we were going contrary to God's wisdom. We were going contrary to God's word, to God's knowledge. We were living out of accord with the truth. We were on a path to death, not Life. And so repentance begins when we acknowledge the, the sinfulness of our sin. And when we then turn from it back to God with the full purpose of walking in new obedience. Not that we're buying God's favor with our obedience, but our faith in Him, our, our new acknowledgement of who He is and of His truth now manifests itself in the endeavor to live in accord with His truth. And the one who does this, the one who who acknowledges the sinfulness of a sin and then turns from that sin back to God, that one receives profound blessings, which we looked at in some detail last Sunday. The one who repents, his sins will be blotted out. The, the, The guilt of his sin will be taken away far as the east is from the west, never to be counted against him. The one who repents will not only be forgiven, but he will be refreshed. Times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord as he is brought back into accord with God's truth, as he is restored to life as it is supposed to be. And then finally, that one who repents will receive the person of Jesus Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit. Christ will be with them, even until that day when he returns to make all things new. These are the blessings of the gospel, the blessings that are are given to the one who repents. This morning our focus is going to be 
on those last, that last section of this call to repentance. Because in here we're going to see two fundamental truths. First we're going to see, as, as Sam was saying to the kids, we're, we're going to see that we must repent. That these blessings that he is describing, they are not automatic. They are not just poured out indiscriminately. But rather these blessings are the blessings given to the one who repents. And therefore, if we would receive these blessings, we must repent. There is no salvation outside the ark. If you will not go in, you will not be saved. But there is a second truth here that that is uh, uh, profoundly comforting. Because not only must we repent, but Peter here wants us to hear that we may repent. Repent. The invitation to repent, the invitation to return to God, the the promise that these blessings will be given to us is open. As John 3.16 famously says, whosoever believes, whosoever, any who come in faith shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. So let's look at these two truths more closely. First, let's look at this idea that we must repent. We, We see this in verses 22 and 23. Notice what Peter says. He says, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And, if, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Now when you're reading Luke's sort of summaries of these sermons, it, it can seem as if Peter or, or Paul, whoever the speaker happens to be, it can seem as if they jump from one topic to the next rather quickly because we, we have a very brief summary of what was undoubtedly a much longer sermon. And so when you read this sermon for yourself, it might seem like this, this quotation from Moses just sort of comes out of the blue and you, you can be puzzled and say, well, what is he getting at here? Why does he suddenly transition to this, this quote from Moses, this this quote from Deuteronomy chapter 18. But what we see in this is that uh, Peter has just laid out before them the blessings of repentance, and now he is uh, reminding them that these blessings are only for the one who repents. And he does that by pointing them to this text from Deuteronomy. Now the text comes near the end of Moses' life. Moses, as you know, was uh, the the leader of Israel. He was the one that God chose to, to bring his people out of their bondage in Egypt. But Deuteronomy comes some 40 years after that. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. Remember, the first giving happened at Sinai. The first giving is recorded for us in the the book of Exodus as God gives the people his law and and enters into covenant with them. He he chooses this nation to be his covenant people and he, he puts his name upon them. And he then begins to lead them through the wilderness to the promised land. But when they get to the promised land, their faith falters. They they see the inhabitants of the land and they are not willing to go in. And because of their unbelief, they are sentenced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, where that entire generation will die before the people are led into the promised land. And now Deuteronomy comes after that 40 years as as Moses is reiterating the, the promises and the law to the people as they are about to enter into the promised land. But Moses isn't going with them. Remember, because of Moses' sin in the wilderness, God said, you shall not enter the land. He gets to to see it from afar. He gets to see it from the top of Mount Ebo, but, but he doesn't get to go in. 
And so the people are fearful. They're wondering, Moses, if you're not going with us, who's going to lead us and how will we recognize him? And it is that very question that this text answers because God tells Moses to tell the people. He says, tell them that I will raise up for them from among their brothers. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, another prophet like Moses who will lead them into the land and will lead them in the way that they should go. And that they will be able to recognize this prophet. They will be able to recognize my chosen leader because he will speak the very words of God. The very words of God will be in his mouth. And you will know they are the very words of God because they will be words of power. They will be words that do not return void. They will be words that come true. And so God says, I will raise up for you a leader who will speak the very words of God, the very words of my power. And that is the one whom you are to listen to. And if you do not listen to him, if you do not listen to the leader that I give you, then you will be judged as one who has rejected the very words of God. You will be destroyed from the people. That is what God is telling them in Deuteronomy 18. He said, you're going to have a leader, a leader who speaks my very words, and you need to listen to him. Now this promise, this this promise of a a prophet like Moses is is a promise that was fulfilled many times throughout Israel's history. There were many prophets who were given to the people, many prophets who who spoke the very words of God, but all of those fulfillments were were partial and were, were, were temporary because the ultimate, final, full fulfillment came only in the ultimate, full, final prophet, in Jesus Christ himself. He is our ultimate prophet. He is the word of God come to his people. The word incarnate. The one who speaks and is the very word of God for his people. And so what Peter is saying to the men of Israel gathered there on that day, he's saying that Moses told you that the word was coming. That that an ultimate prophet was coming. And if you do not listen to him, you will be judged. And that ultimate prophet is none other than Jesus Christ. And so the warning that is being set forth in this passage is that if you don't listen to Jesus, if you don't heed his call to repent and believe the good news of the kingdom, then you will be destroyed from The people. Jesus is the ark. There is no salvation outside of him. You either repent and believe in Jesus, or you stand alone in the flood of God's coming wrath. If you will not repent, you will not be counted as one of God's people, but rather you will stand before him as his enemy. You will stand before him upon the record of your own death. You will receive from him the condemnation that is justly yours. The only way of salvation is in and through Jesus Christ. That is the truth that that Peter is driving home to the men of Israel that stand before him. 
Now, this is not a popular teaching today. The idea that, that Jesus is the only Savior and that faith in Him is the only way of, of salvation is, is regarded not only as false, but as hateful. It's, it's narrow, it's, it's exclusive, it's intolerant, it's, it's bigoted. How could you believe such a thing? This is, the, this is the reaction that we get today to this gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. And I want us to see two things about that response. First, the first thing I want us to see is that the exclusivity of the gospel, the, 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 the narrowness of the gospel is real, and it is the clear teaching of Scripture. It is the unambiguous proclamation of God's Word. We're going to hear Peter say it himself in the next chapter. Uh, there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. And this just wasn't just the, the, the apostles who proclaimed this. Jesus himself said this. Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is the very Word of God. This is what God says about his own gospel. And therefore, we, we need to understand that be, simply because the world hates it, just because, simply because the, the world despises it, simply because the world regards it as intolerant, doesn't mean that we are free to set it aside. This is the very Word of God. I remember when I used to do ministry at the University of North Carolina in Asheville. I was dealing primarily with unbelieving students. And when I uh, would interact with them regarding the gospel, those who were willing to talk to me at least, when I would, when I would interact with them, I would, I would always say to them, hey, listen, the first question is not whether you like what the Bible has to say. That's where the students always wanted to begin. Well, how can you believe in a Bible that says this about abortion? Or how can you believe in a Bible that says this about sex? Or how can you believe in a Bible that says this? Or how can you believe in a, a Bible that says that? And I would always remind the students that the, the first question is not whether you like what the Bible says. The first fundamental question is, did God say it? Is this the word of the maker of heaven and earth? Is this the word of the sovereign Lord of space and time? If God said it, it doesn't matter much whether you like it. And again, that sounds harsh, I know. But we need to, we need to face this. God is not our creation. He is not subject to our whims. He is not subject to our fancies. He is the Lord. He is the maker of heaven and earth, and he in grace speaks to us and reveals to us the truth, and we must receive that truth as truth. The first question is not whether we like it. What matters is that it is true. What matters is that this is the word of the living God, and we know it's the word of the living God because it's the word that Jesus Christ spoke and Jesus and his apostles spoke, and they were men attested to us by God. Just as, just as God said to the people in, in Moses' day, I will send to you a prophet and you will be able to recognize him. God has always allowed us to recognize those who speak from him. He has always publicly validated. He has always affirmed and attested those who speak his word through signs and wonders. It's, it's exactly what we see going on in this chapter. The people are listening to Peter because a man born lame had been healed. They had seen the power of God at work and now they knew 
that God's power was working in and through these apostles, and therefore they turned to them to hear what God had to say. And it is no different today. We must receive the words of the apostles as the very words of God because they are true. Because this is the word of the maker of heaven and earth. But we don't want to stop there. We don't want to only say, you know, it's the truth, get over it. You know, we also want to address this charge of of narrowness, this this charge of, of intolerance. And what we need to say there is that the truth is always narrow. This is not unique to the claims of the gospel. This is not unique to to Peter's claims about Jesus being the only way. That's, That's not the only narrow truth. All truth is narrow. The truth doesn't give you options. It doesn't matter whether it's the truth about Jesus or if it's the truth about gravity. Just if you choose not to believe in gravity, it doesn't mean that you are exempt from its effects. It doesn't mean that it's, that it's not true. You, you've heard me say it a thousand times, but, but it's, it's true that you don't get to decide that a diet of, of Twinkies and Mountain Dew will be good for you. Yesterday I was talking to, to Thomas about uh, you know, a kid who got sick at one of their practices, and he said, well, it's no wonder he, came, he entered the gym eating Taco Bell. You know, even, even my son knows that if you eat Taco Bell five minutes before a basketball practice, it's not going to go well for you. You don't get to decide. The truth is always narrow. And when we see this, when we understand that the, that the truth by, by its very essence is narrow, by the, by the very fact that it must be received or denied, but it's true either way, when we see this, it, it changes our, our uh, a reaction, at least, to this charge of being narrow. It helps us to see that the, the charge of being narrow is actually sort of silly. If the gospel is true, of course it's narrow. That's the very nature of truth. This is actually why self-proclaimed liberals end up being narrow despite themselves. They believe certain things are true. (laughs) They they believe that, that certain ways of living are true and that other ways are not good. And while we may disagree with them about the substance of their beliefs, we can at least affirm that they're right. You know, either this is true or it's not. And their narrowness shouldn't surprise us. And our narrowness shouldn't surprise them because truth is narrowing by its very essence. And when we see that, this is what I want you to hear, when we we see that truth by its very essence is narrow, it ought to radically change the way we think about the charge of hate. Is it hateful to proclaim the truth? Even if that truth is narrow? Is that that hateful? It's admittedly severe. That's actually the word that Paul uses. He says, behold, the the severity of God. (laughs) It is admittedly severe. We are not downplaying that. We, We are not denying that. But hear me say, it is not hateful to proclaim the truth, even a narrow truth. In fact, it's just the opposite. 
If the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, and it is, that's why we're here. Because this gospel is true, and because it is true, it is not hateful to proclaim it. It is actually hateful not to proclaim it. We recognize this in the the case of interventions. When when someone is trapped in some sort of uh, cycle of destructive behavior, whether it's with alcohol or with drugs or or really anything else, we we recognize that there comes a point where we we have to intervene with the truth. We we have to confront this person with the reality that they are are harming themselves and and those around them. We, We proclaim to them the truth, even if they don't want to hear it. We proclaim to them the truth because it's not loving not to do so. And we need to recognize that the same is true of the gospel. It is not loving not to proclaim the gospel just because it's narrow. Unbelief is destructive behavior, both in this life and in the life to come. Remember what we said about the the times of refreshing that come to those who repent. When you are walking in sin, you are walking in ways of death. You are walking in ways of, of destruction. It is not loving to conceal the truth because unbelief is destructive in this life and it is ultimately destructive in the age to come. The one who dies apart from Christ is eternally separated from all good and blessedness. That is the truth. It's a severe truth. But it is God's truth. And therefore, it is a truth that we must proclaim. We must proclaim it first to ourselves. We talk about preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. This is part of it. This is is part of the truth that that we have to proclaim to ourselves every day. When we are are tempted to to deny Christ's lordship over our lives, and when we are tempted to, to cling to some favorite sin or some favorite unbelief, In those situations where we see ourselves turning away from God back to our sin, we need to remind ourselves of the full gospel, including the absolute requirement to repent. The absolute requirement to to turn from our sin to God with the full purpose of and endeavor after obedience. We must preach this gospel to ourselves. We we must remind ourselves that if we go on sinning deliberately, if we reject Jesus, there is no other sacrifice for sins. But we must remember this for others as well. We must preach this gospel to them because we must remember that it is their only hope. It is in this gospel that they will hear the words of life. And there is no other gospel by which they might be saved. It doesn't mean that every conversation with your, with your unbelieving friends has to be an evangelistic presentation. That's not what I'm saying. But we must be ready to confess Jesus Christ as the alone hope of life for those who, uh, for those who are still in their sins. We must be willing to confess Christ as the sole ground of salvation, the only name under heaven by which men might be saved. This is what Peter is is proclaiming to the people of Israel on that day. He, He is saying, listen, I'm presenting this to you not as an option. 
I'm not suggesting that if you'll go come this way, there are some really great blessings, but I'll understand if you might choose a different path. He's saying, no, listen, return to the Lord and you will receive blessings beyond your imagination, but know this, that if you will not turn, the consequences are severe. If you will not enter the ark, you will be swept away in the flood. If you will not repent, you will be destroyed from among God's people. That is the truth. But it's not all that he says. He he lays before them as clearly as he can this, this absolute necessity of repentance. But then he immediately goes on to assure them that the opportunity to repent is theirs. He he says you must repent, but he also says you may repent. We, We see this in verses 25 and 26. Notice what Peter says. He says, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servants, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Again, he, he's speaking to the, the men of Israel who have, who have gathered around to, to, to hear some explanation of this, this sign that has been accomplished among them. And he assures them that the opportunity to repent belongs to them. And now we can understand why they might have had their doubts. Remember, Peter has just proclaimed that, that these blessings of, of repentance are secured through the suffering of Jesus Christ. It is, it is through Christ's death that, that, that these blessings have, have come. He is the Savior. And yet, even though he is the author of life, they killed him. They are the ones who put him to death. They are the ones who are responsible for his rejection and his murder. It's understandable that they might be wondering whether or not the the opportunity to forget, to repent and receive forgiveness in Jesus' name really belongs to them. After all, they were complicit in his death. And Peter says, yes. The opportunity is is yours. He assures them not by downplaying their sin in any way. Notice, he he says that Jesus has been sent to them to turn them from their wickedness. It's another one of those phrases that doesn't go over well in our society today. But he isn't afraid to say, hey, listen, you are wicked. You are in sin. You are rebels against God. He he doesn't downplay the, the truth of their sin in any way. And yet, he says, your sins do not disqualify you. Your sins do not exclude you from the hope of the gospel. The opportunity to repent is held out to you. That's important for us to hear. It's important for us to hear because it, it reminds us That our sins do not disqualify us. There are are some among us who who struggle with the belief that our sins are, are, are too bad. We can believe the gospel for others. We can believe that God might forgive others. We can believe that God might forgive their sins. But if he really knew the truth of what we've done, the truth of what we've thought, the truth of what we've said, you wouldn't believe that forgiveness was possible for me. This is what people mean when they say, I just can't forgive myself. That is a lie of Satan. 
The gospel is greater than your sins. It's what Peter is, is saying here to the, the men of Israel. And it's what we need to hear. Our sins do not disqualify us from the gospel, but, but not being disqualified is the na- not exactly the same thing as being qualified. So, so how does Peter assure them that this opportunity is for them? He says, listen, you are true children of Abraham. You are true children of the covenant. He's assuring them that they belong to the the group of people to whom these promises were made. Now, we're used to that. We're used to thinking that that certain privileges belong to to certain people. Citizens have certain privileges that non-citizens do not have. They they get to vote. They they get to do things. We're going to have a congregational meeting in a little while. Members of the church are going to get to vote where non-members are not. Certain privileges belong to, to certain people. And Peter is assuring them that they are the people to whom these privileges belong. The opportunity to repent of repentance belongs to them because they are true children of Abraham. They are the sons of the prophets. They are the sons of the covenant. And therefore, the promises belong to them. And that's good news for them. But what about us? We're not Jews. We're we're not Jews physical descendants of of Abraham. We're not sons of the prophets. We're not sons of the the covenant. We are Gentiles. We are the ends of the earth. (laughs) So is there any hope for us? Does Peter say anything to reassure us this this morning? I think he does. In fact, he promises to us that the invitation is open to us as well. We, We see it in that little word, first. What is it that Peter says? He says, God sent him to you first. And that first implies a, a second. It's a second that Peter or that Paul makes explicit in his, his letter to the Romans. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Gentile. And we get hung up sometimes trying to figure out in what sense is it first to the Jew? If that's the question that you're asking, if that's the question that you're hung up on, you miss the point. The point is not the priority of the Jews. The the point is the inclusion of the Gentiles. That's what is amazing. He says, not only the Jews, but the Gentiles too. And it's not as if this is some change to God's plan. This was the plan from the very beginning. Paul calls it a mystery, something that was there all along but was hidden. And now only now only fully revealed. But we see it even in the promise that God makes to Abraham. God promises Abraham, I will bless you and through you. Blessing will flow to all the families of the earth. This was the plan from the very beginning. You were included You were foreknown. God intended his gospel to flow to the ends of the earth. He intended not just to save the Jews, but through the Jews to save all the families of the earth, to open to them the possibility of repentance that whosoever believes might be saved. This is the glory of the gospel. And it means that no matter what your heritage, no matter what your sins no matter who you are or where you are this morning, the gospel is for you. The blessings of repentance are offered to you if you will return to the Lord. 
if you will turn from your sin back to him with the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. And so the question that Peter leaves them with is the question that we are left with this morning. Will you repent? Will you return to the Lord? If not, the the gospel is severe because it is truth and it is narrow and it leaves no alternatives. If you will not repent, you will receive from the king his full, unmeasured wrath. If you will not repent, you will stand before him and receive from him according to your works, which fall short of the glory of God. That is a sober warning. But there is also a glorious hope. And it is the good news of the gospel, the promise that if you will repent, if you will turn, forgiveness and and refreshing and filling will be yours. For these are the promises that belong to all and to any who repent. And because such blessings are freely offered to whosoever believes, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in the wonders of this gospel. We sometimes tremble at its severity. We sometimes tremble at the reality that we are sinners justly condemned. We sometimes uh, tremble at the, the reality that there is but one name given under heaven by which men must be saved. But Father, open us to the wonder that there is one name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Open us to the wonder that you have given your people a solid rock upon which they might stand. That you have opened to them the possibility that if they will repent, if they will turn, they will be blessed. Father, may we believe this gospel for ourselves and may we proclaim it with joy to others that they too might believe and receive forgiveness and refreshing and filling In the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, it's in his name and for his name's sake that we pray. Amen.